0: That grace-filled and mercy-driven, though the New Testament is, that nearly every single letter in the New Testament is spent fighting heresy. That's interesting, isn't it? Mercy-driven and grace-filled, though the New Testament is, almost every single letter in the New Testament is written, as it were, with boxing gloves on. In the context of a cage match between some apostle and some kind of opponent seeking to pervert and undermine the gospel, isn't that interesting to you? Because you remember, there was the false gospel in Galatia where Paul told those who wished to pervert the gospel that they could go to hell. There was that weird cult in Colossians There was that bizarre teaching about the end times that Paul had to contend with in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Someone someone was stirring the pot behind the scenes of 1 and 2 Corinthians, spreading lies about the resurrection. There were heretics and false teachers that Paul addressed in 1 and 2 Timothy. There were hostile Jewish antagonists in the book of Hebrews who told lies about Jesus Christ and persecuted the church. Paul said to the Philippians, Philippians is a super encouraging letter, and yet there's this place in Philippians where Paul says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, watch out for those who call themselves the circumcision, a Jewish sect that sought to pervert the gospel. There were false teachers, false prophets in 2 Peter and Jude and Believe it or not, almost every single one of the churches in the book of Revelation were facing some kind of poisonous threat of heresy and false teaching. And ever since then, by the way, every generation of Christians has had to fight for the purity and the exclusivity of the gospel. And what that does is tell us, although we are called to love and make the peace, Christianity is also characterized by profound doctrinal conviction. As in, gun to the head, shoot me dead, kind of conviction that does not yield to our feelings or to the culture. Because although we are called to be sure not to be contentious about the faith, we are called nevertheless to contend for the faith. And contending for the faith is exactly what John does in our text this morning. What's interesting about the Apostle John is that although when he wrote this, he was a senior citizen in his 90s, which could give the impression that he is feeble and fragile and frail when he gets wind of this creepy new age cult that had infiltrated the churches over whom he was responsible. He puts pen to paper and fights like a Viking in his prime. As I said last week, the apostle of love, he certainly knows how to give a hug, but he also knows how to throw a punch. That's exactly what he does. And up till now, you know that John is only speaking about these teachers in veiled terms. He's only spoken about them in indirect roundabout ways. But you see, after almost two full chapters of unfolding the glory of the riches of eternal life, the gloves come off and he directly addresses those who are spreading false ideas about eternal life. And you see, here's the thing about John's writing that makes it so intriguing and even irresistible, is that John is the master of at making his words, kill two birds with one stone. What I mean is, at the same time that he beats back the wolves, he simultaneously helps the sheep. He refutes the bogus claims of the con men on the one hand, and with the exact same words, he reaffirms the faith of those who were rattled by the con men, because you got to do this. you gotta, you got to fight for the purity and the exclusivity of the gospel. And the reason why you do is because the life and the health and the effectiveness and the impact of any church is not dependent on its programs. But on the ability of the people in that church to love and to know and to defend sound doctrine. Because you understand where theology is weak, souls are weak. Where doctrine is fuzzy, churches are fragile. Where knowledge of salvation is lacking in the church, spiritual health suffers in the church. And John is not about to let that happen. And one of the reasons why this letter is in our Bibles is because Christ does not want that to happen to us. So to prepare you what you're about to hear this morning, let me just ask you. Do you value theological precision and clarity. Is that a value to you? Does that, does that mean something to you? Here's another one. Do you see it do you see it as part of what it means to glorify God, to surrender and yield what He has re- spoken in the text? Do you see that as part of what it means to glorify God, to surrender to what He has spoken in the text? Here's another one. Do you see it as part of your identity, as a Christ follower, to always be expanding and growing in your knowledge of doctrine and theological truth? And the most important question of all is: is the most important question of your life, what does the text say? Because that is the most important question of life, by the way. And that matters to John, and you can see it here. You can see it in the way he shepherds his people, and so let's watch him shepherd his people. Let's go to the text, urgent and profound. Here's where John is going. This is in your notes. This morning, I want you to see from our text six clarifying comforts. Six clarifying comforts that simultaneously (coughs) refute error and reaffirm our faith. Six clarifying comforts that simultaneously refute error on the one hand and reaffirm our faith on the other. Because last week, you remember, we saw comforts one through three. We saw the first three comforts. And you remember, you remember, the first comfort that John provides is that he helps them make sense out of what it is that just happened to them. Because what just happened to them was kind of like a church split. The fellowship, you remember, was fractured by these People who These clever, persuasive people who, over time, they won the people's trust. They gained credibility. The problem is their friendship was nothing more than a ploy to smuggle in a new teaching that called into question some of the most sacred doctrines of the Christian faith, like the deity of Christ, like the humanity of Christ, like the full atoning power of the death of Jesus Christ. And yet how it usually goes in these situations, when people in the church begin to oppose the false teachers... The teachers get divisive, they get get, um, angry, they get defensive, they polarize the body, and very soon they leave the fellowship, taking some of the people in the church with them, which was their goal all along, because their goal was never to grow the church, it was only to destroy the church. And that hurt. That hurt really bad to have the bones of their fellowship broken by these people that they had come to trust. And so John's comfort in verses 18 and 19 is, don't worry, little church. Don't worry. It is the last hour. And many antichrists and defectors come and go. That's the comfort. But you see, what that does is raise the question. The question is, how do I know that I won't be like those defectors and walk away from Christ? How do I know? How do I know that I can be sure that I will not begin to believe error and lies and be swept away by false doctrine? How do I know? Is there anything that God provides in the package of salvation that will keep me from heresy and apostasy? And there totally is. And that's the second clarifying comfort. Don't worry, little church. Don't worry. God has given you what you need to not fall into error. He's given you what you need to not fall into error. And what you need to not fall into error is what John calls, in verse 20, the anointing from the Holy One. That's what you need. And if you belong to Christ, that's exactly what you have. And last week we saw that the anointing, there's nothing... Mystical or weird about that. The anointing is the internal operation of the Spirit at work in true believers. And what the Spirit does, His role is not to give additional truth outside the Bible but rather to help us understand the truth that's already there in the Bible. That is the anointing, and that is what preserves us and protects us from believing error and lies. That is a comfort. But then, comfort number three. Again, this is still last week. Comfort number three. Don't worry, little church. Those who deny the truth are liars, but you have the Father and the Son. Those who believe the truth are liars, but you have the Father and the Son. And John's comfort here is simple but profound. When these these deceivers, when they denied the deity of Christ, they not only rejected the Son, they rejected the Father who sent him because you can't have one without the other. And by that very rationale, John says, when you confessed the Son... When you believed in the Son, you not only got the Son, you also got the Father and everything He promised in and through His Son, which means when you believe in the Son, you don't just get the Son alone, but you get access to the very Trinity Himself, which means our faith is a Trinitarian faith. And that's a comfort. Which brings us then, speaking of the Trinity, to clarifying comfort number four. Clarifying comfort number four, which is, don't worry, little church, don't worry. You are in the Father and the Son, and you have eternal life. You are in the Father, and you are in the Son, and you have eternal life. Last week I said that this text here that we're looking at, that this is a literary work of art. And I mean it, it totally is. It, it's, it's so brilliant. In fact, John arranges, get this now, he arranges this entire text, 18 through 29, in six pairs of two, ber- two verses. Six pairs of two verses. And yet the way he arranged them is like an ascending and descending set of stairs with verses twenty two and twenty three and twenty four and twenty five at the at the top of the staircase, the verses go up are like the stairs the verses before that are like the verse stairs that go up. the verses after are like stairs that go down, and there's perfect symmetry and balance on either sides, perfectly arranged, beautiful symmetry. And the point of the structure, the point of what he's doing here is that the verse the steps that go up refute the bogus claims of the teachers, the steps that go down reaffirm their faith and what they must believe. But you can tell at the top of the staircase, John has a profoundly Trinitarian concern because the Trinity is the deepest concern of the entirety of the Bible. And so having just spoken about the Father and the Son, watch what John does in verse 24. Starting in verse 23, he says, Everyone who denies the Son, neither has the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, here it is, you will abide in the Son and in the Father. See what he does there in verse 24, how he seeks to reaffirm their faith? He says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Literally, be abiding in you. In other words, forget everything you heard from those dupes and those deceivers. And I want you to go back to the beginning, what you heard from faithful apostles and preachers and pastors at the very beginning when you got saved. I want you to go back to what you heard at the very beginning, and I want you to make that the focus of your contemplation. What that does is raise the question, though, right? What had they heard from the beginning? What were those sacred truths that they heard at the very beginning to which they were to cling with white-knuckled tenacity? And the answer is, what they had heard from the beginning are probably the very things that John makes the focus of this very letter. Things like, for instance, the identity of Christ, the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the imminency of Christ, the exclusivity of Christ, the saving sufficiency of Christ in everything that he accomplished with his death, that is what they heard at the beginning because those are the kinds of things you tell people to get them saved. And so let's walk those, walk through those one at a time. They're in your notes. What they heard from the beginning was the identity of Christ, that he is Lord and King and Savior, and treasure, and the Messiah who came to save the souls of men. What they heard from the beginning was the deity of Christ. That is that Jesus Christ is nothing less than fully and eternally God. What they heard from the beginning also, though, was the humanity of Christ. That is, that Jesus is the God who was born as a literal, historical human being. He is God and man. He is the God-man, otherwise known as the incarnation. But you see, from the beginning, they also heard about the imminency of Christ. That is, at any moment, Jesus Christ could return and deliver his people who wait and hope for him. He is coming Again, but they also heard from the beginning about the exclusivity of Christ. That is, He's not one option on the table out of many, but that in Him alone is found redemption and forgiveness of sins. He is the way and the truth and the life. And then certainly from the beginning, they heard about the sufficiency of Christ. And everything that he accomplished with his death and what he accomplished with his death is the treasure of salvation paid for in full, full atonement for all those who repent and place their trust in Christ. That's what they heard from the beginning, those kinds of things. The question is, is that what you heard from the beginning? Is that what you heard from the very beginning? And if that's not what you heard from the beginning, will you affirm those right this moment as central as the most important things in the entirety of your life? Because if you don't believe those things, I'm asking you to reconsider. And if you do believe those things, I'm asking you, will you make those the object of your conscious focus and contemplation as you go throughout your day? And the reason why I ask you you that is because that's exactly what John says to do in verse 24. Look what he says. He says, let what you heard from the beginning, here it is, abide in you. Literally, be abiding in you. Meaning what? Meaning what? what? What does it mean exactly to have truths about Jesus Christ abiding in you? Because that's what he means. It's exactly what he's talking about: truths about Christ that you've read, truths that you've heard, truths that you know, truths that you believe. I mean, what on earth is he describing here? To have truth abiding in you. Well, what he is describing, get this now, is not just someone who reads biblical truth or, and may or may not think about it ever again. Rather, he is talking about moment by moment contemplation of the glory of Christ as you go throughout your day. That's what he means. In other words, he's talking about your thought life what you think, what it is that occupies your mind as you navigate your day. In other words, John is talking about a particular relationship to God's Word that doesn't just read the Word but has an umbilical cord relationship to the Word. That's exactly what he is talking about. Because when you were born, the umbilical cord was cut, wasn't it? But when you are born again, you stay moment by moment to Christ through the umbilical cord of His Word. That's what John's talking about. And you know that self-driving cars, those are a thing. And while self-driving cars, those are a fine idea, a self-driving mind is a disaster waiting to happen. Rather, you need to think about your mind, your thought life, like a manual transmission You control the clutch, you control the brake, you control the gas, you control the gears, we control our mind, we govern our thoughts, we give our mind what it must think. And what John says, what it must think, is what you heard from the beginning, and what you heard, or at least what you should have heard, should occupy your minds as you go throughout your day, which means our minds should be saturated with the glory of Jesus Christ question is is that what saturates your mind the question is what is it like inside your head throughout the day what is your thought life like is what i'm asking is your mind like a driverless car And your day is just a series of emotional responses to things that happen outside of you? Or is your mind, do you drive the car of your mind with biblical truth? Because I'm just telling you, if you are the one who drives your thought life, if you are the one who gives your mind what it must think, if you you deliberately focus and contemplate on biblical truth, you won't think crazy thoughts. You won't think fearful thoughts thoughts, you won't think irrational thoughts, you won't think angry thoughts, you won't think lustful or adulterous thoughts, you won't think covetous thoughts, you won't get frazzled and angry and self-focused. And one of John's concern is, if you let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, you won't think trashy garbage that isn't true. But the thing is, there's actually even a bigger payoff to thinking about truth than just not being a grouchy person. Look what the payoff is, verse 24. He says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning should abide in you, here it is, you will abide in the Son and in the Father. That's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. Do, do you see do you see John's trinitarian concern there? If the word abides in you, you will abide in the son and in the father. What is he talking about? He means the word is the instrument through which we gain access to God. The Word is the portal through which we gain access to the very power and presence of God Himself. Because think about it. Think about what it is that you enjoy when you enjoy God's Word. I mean, what was happening in that moment when you enjoy the Bible, when you're encouraged by Scripture, when you're helped by Scripture, when you're nourished by Scripture, when you are strengthened by Scripture, what is it exactly that you are enjoying in that moment? Is it the poetic artistry of the language? Is it the literary craftsmanship? Is it the aesthetic power of the composition? Is it the intellectual stimulation of theological ideas? Because the Bible has all those things and they are glorious. But don't you see, when you enjoy the Bible, you are, en- you are not enjoying those things in and of themselves. Rather, what you are enjoying is the matchless beauty of God himself. That's what you're enjoying. And not just God in a general way. Rather, when you enjoy the Bible, what you are enjoying is the Father and the Son. In other words the Bible is the gateway to sharing in the life of the Trinity himself. Did you know that? Did you know that the scriptures are how you enjoy life in the Trinity, sharing life with the Trinity? Because that's actually what you need more than anything else in your life, that, that more than a vaccine, more than a stimulus check, more than a vacation, more than a new job, more than a change of scenery. More than a diet, more than a spouse, more than a kitchen remodel, however important those things may be. It's just that what you need before and under all those things is the surpassing enjoyment of the Trinity Himself. If you don't have that, nothing is going to satisfy. Because if the Word abides in you, you will abide in the Father and in the Son. And and I get how this sounds. This doesn't sound very practical. Enjoying the Trinity. How does that that help me with with nitty-gritty issues in the trenches of life? Oh, oh, trust me when I say this is the essence of practical. Because when you enjoy the Trinity, you will then be given the power to handle anything you face in your life. So here's the question. If you want to enjoy all of the joy and life change you heard was possible in the Christian life, and mark my words, it is possible, then you need to know that it only comes when you meet with the living God through His Word. That's it. That's how it happens. And yes, I mean reading the Bible, but I don't mean hasty reading. Rather, I mean serious rigorous meditation upon holy and heavenly truths until they become beautiful and sweet to your soul. I mean pleading with God for eyes to see what He has spoken and revealed in the sacred text. Because yes, you can see God in people. You can see God in creation. But rather the mechanism, the means through which God is most distinctly and clearly and, and directly revealed is through the book that you're holding in your hands. And so make a plan. Make a priority. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, and then you will abide in the Father and in the Son. That's a comfort. Which brings us to the next clarifying comfort, number five. Number five, don't worry, little church. The truth you received is sufficient, and you don't lack a thing. The truth is, you received, is absolutely sufficient, and you don't lack a single solitary thing because that's exactly what these people claimed. These imposters and counterfeits, that what God had spoken in the text was not enough. It wasn't enough. You needed additional truth outside of God's word to make your faith complete. And what they really meant was to make your faith complete. You need us. We have the secrets. We have the knowledge. We have the never-before-heard revelation that your pastor doesn't know or doesn't want you to know. And John blows the bridge on that kind of thinking because it's crazy and it's ridiculous and it's evil. And how he does that is by mentioning again the work of the Spirit in your life known as the anointing. You see it, right? This text is perfectly parallel with verses 20 and 21. Look at verses 26 and 27. These things I wrote to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And the anointing which you received from him is abiding in you. And you don't have a need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is no lie, and even as it taught you, you abide in him. And you see it there in verse 26, John directly addresses the deceivers. He says, these things I wrote to you about those who are trying to deceive you. I mean, think about that. Part of why this letter came into existence is because there were wolves in grandma's clothing trying to eat the sheep for whom John was responsible. And again, you know that John has taken his sweet time before he dr- directly addresses these leaders. But now, here in this text, he calls them liars and antichrists and anti-Trinitarians and deceivers. And here in verse 26, he makes known what their agenda was the entire time. And their agenda was always deception. It was always deception. These people never wanted to grow the church. They only wanted to destroy the church. And yet what that does is raise the question, okay, what exactly was the sales pitch of these heretics? What what was their methodology for leading people astray? What what, what did they use to draw people away after them? In verse 27, we see between the lines exactly what their methodology was. Look at what he says. Notice very carefully. I'm writing about those who are trying to deceive you. The anointing, on the other hand, which you received is abiding in you. And you do not have a need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is no lie, and even as it taught you, you abide in him. Do you see between the lines what their methodology was? Do you see it? You need us. You need us. You need our secrets. You need us to be your teachers and gurus to share with you the knowledge that you are never going to get another way because you understand this cult, like all cults, were like two-way parasites. They fed on others, feeding on them. Their goal was to get these people to need them like a drug. That's exactly why John says, because of the anointing, because of the anointing you have, you don't need anyone to teach you? (laughs) Which raises two questions. Two two issues, doesn't it? Okay, what is the anointing again? And two, how does the anointing rule out the need for people to teach you? That's the question. Those are the questions. So first, what is the anointing? And, And John basically tells us what the anointing is in this very verse. Look what he says. He says the anointing is in you. Notice, the anointing teaches you. And notice the anointing is true. And here's the thing, when you look at John's letter as a whole, when you stand back and look, get this, he speaks about the role of the Spirit in the exact same way, which seems to indicate that the anointing is the internal ministry of the Spirit that helps us know and love and apply the very Scripture that he himself inspired. Because what we must understand about the Spirit is that His role is not, is not, is not to give us additional truth outside the Bible, but rather to help us understand the truth that's already there in the Bible. That's the anointing. And and what that does, John says, that rules out the need for anyone to teach you. And by anyone, He means not them. Not them. You don't need them to teach you. Why? Because their very premise was that you needed something more than the Bible. This is not enough. This is not sufficient. There are secrets. There are deeper secret things that you don't know, that I know, and you need me to teach you. And John blows the whistle on that. He calls foul, and he says, that's not true. That is a lie. Everything you need for life And reality and eternity and holiness and joy is contained there in the sacred text. And the role, the ministry of the Spirit is to help you understand what God has already revealed. Therefore, you don't need them to teach you. Because look what he says in verse 27. The anointing is abiding in you. And you don't have a need for anyone to teach you. But notice, here it is. His anointing teaches you about All things, all things, everything that God has revealed in His Word is open to you through the ministry of the Spirit. He helps you understand what God has revealed. And what that means is that there are two kinds of teaching nowadays of which you should be very leery and very aware of. Two kinds of teaching. One, the kind which separates the Spirit from Scripture. Two, the kind of teaching that remotely hints that you need additional truth outside of Scripture. And in particular, I'm thinking of those who claim to hear the voice of God, who claim to receive messages from God. Because you understand, when people sever Scripture from the Spirit, when they, when they do that, when they claim, well. You can listen to the Spirit, or you can listen to Scripture, and then they separate the two. You have to understand, they are speaking about the Spirit in terms completely foreign to the New Testament. That that kind of language would have been unintelligible to the apostles. Why? Because the Word is the very instrument of the Spirit. It's never the Spirit or the Word. It's not even the Spirit and the Word. It's the Spirit working in and through the Word, which means if you want to be a Spirit-filled person, if you want to be a Spirit-led person, if you want to see the supernatural power of God at work in your life, and I know you do, then what you need to be is a Word-filled person. Because the word is not called the sword of the spirit for nothing. But also number two. Also number two, you should be very, very leery of that teaching that claims that to make your faith complete, you need to hear the voice of God. That you need additional messages from God. As if God has not already spoken. For thousands of years. Perfectly recorded in a 600,000 word document called the sacred text because, because implicit in that claim that you need to hear God's voice is the claim that you need additional truth outside of the Bible. You see, the very flaw in that thinking is a misunderstanding of what the Bible is. It's not just a piece of literature. It is the portal through which we gain access to the power and presence of God himself. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living. It is living. It is alive. And it's active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Don't you see? The Word of God is the voice of God. And in it, God speaks. In it, God reveals Himself. In His Word, He is present, always present to strengthen and comfort, and empower, and satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. Don't you see the word of God is the power to slay us, and then to revive us and reform us into the image of Christ? Knowing that then, knowing that that's the case, here's the question. What area of your life would you love to see transformed by God's Word? What area of your life would you love to see transformed better? Husbands, what area of your life would your wife love to see transformed by God's Word? Gotcha. Seriously. But seriously, though, what area of your life would your, lo- would your wife love to see transformed by God's Word? What would she say? those who have roommates or siblings, those who see you in your most unguarded and private moments, those who see the most raw, unfinished areas of your life yet to be conquered by Jesus Christ, for Jesus Christ, what area of your life do you think they would love to see transformed by the power of the truth? What would they say? What would they say? because you understand transformation with the truth is exactly what the Spirit does. But that's not all he does. Look at John's final comment at the end of verse 27. He says, The anointing is true and is no lie. And here it is. And even as it taught you, even as the anointing taught you, or you can even say he there, if you want to supply the Spirit, even as he taught you, you abide in him. What is he doing? See what he's doing there? He's doing exactly what he did in verses 20 and 21, and he is giving them the deepest assurance why they will not wander off the reservation of truth into an ocean of error, which they were actually kind of worried about they were pretty rattled by the claims of these false teachers, which on the surface sounded actually pretty persuasive, but they won't. They won't be deceived. They won't wander off. If they truly have the spirit, they won't be duped and deceived by lies. You're going to be able to sniff them out. You're never going to get swept away. Kind of like when I go bowling with my kids. Because when I go bowling with my kids, we put the bumpers in the gutters. And the bumpers... In the gutters is what keeps you in the lane of truth and not falling into the gutter of deception and error. That's what the Spirit does. That's what He does. He teaches you so that you will make it to the end with your faith intact. But speaking of making it to the end with your faith intact, that brings us now to the final comfort. Final comfort number six don't worry, little church. Don't worry. One day Christ will return, and you will have no shame when he does. One day Christ will return, and you will have no shame when he does. Look at verses 28 and 29. And now, little children, abide in him. Why? So that when he should appear, we should have boldness, and we should not be ashamed by him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness has been born from him. Do you see it? How these two final verses mirror the first two? It is the last hour, verse 18. And the Antichrist is coming. Many Antichrists have come, but but the Christ, the true Christ here, he is coming again. And when he does, those of you who love him Those of you who adore him and imperfect though it may be, trust in him will have no shame when he comes. And notice the stroke of pastoral brilliance here as John calls a bunch of adults little children in verse 28. He called them children in verse 18. He calls them little children in verse 28, which means he's even more tender than when he began. He's just loving and shepherding his people. And notice how he shepherds them. Be Little children, abide in him. Literally, be abiding in him. Why? So that when he should appear, we should have boldness and not be ashamed. Do you see the comfort that John brings here? I think these people were concerned. I think they were rattled and fearful that they were going to walk away from the faith, just like the people in verse 19, some of whom just happened to be their friends. And so John tells them, look, the way to not become an apostate, the way to not fall away from the faith is to abide in Jesus Christ. And interestingly, by the way, that word abide there is the exact same word used in verse 19, when he said, if they were of us, they would have with us. Same word. And so what does John say? Verse 28. What does he say is the outcome of abiding in Christ. He says the way to not become an apostate is to abide in him. Here it is. So that when he should appear we should have boldness and not be ashamed. Do you see what he's doing there? The means to not becoming an apostate the means to not being ashamed of Jesus when he comes. The means of maintaining our faith firm until the end depends upon a tenacious, white, duckled, white, knuckled death grip on Jesus Christ through his word. That's what he's saying. Because that's exactly what abiding is. And you remember that word abiding, don't you? Taken from John 15, that's agricultural language describes the kind of organic connection that branches have to the trees to which they belong. it describes this life-giving botanical process where branches are helplessly dependent upon trees for the fruit that they yield. That's exactly what this is. That's exactly how the Christian life operates because we are so big nowadays, aren't we? I'm talking about a relationship with Christ. This is not a religion. This is a relationship. And that's true but we need to define what that relationship means and looks like. And what it looks like is a ferocious kung fu grip dependence on Jesus Christ through his word. That is the relationship that is abiding. So you see John's point, and it's a real doozy. Here it is. The way to have a faith that does not fizzle. The way to have a faith that is not ashamed of him when he comes. The way to have a faith that does not crash and burn, but instead perseveres firm until the end, is through moment by moment dependence upon Christ through his word. That is what authentic faith actually looks like. Because that statement, once saved, always saved, that's true. It is true but it doesn't go nearly far enough. It skips the whole part in the middle that says that authentic faith reveals itself in glad-hearted desperation that clings to Jesus Christ. That is the faith that perseveres to the end. That is the faith that is not ashamed when Christ returns. The question is, is that the kind of faith you possess? Is that what your faith looks like? Not just intellectual affirmation of a few theological ideas. But does your faith manifest itself in kung fu dependence upon Christ? Kung fu, grip dependence upon Christ through his word. Clinging to him, hoping in him moment by moment, second by second. That is faith. That is the kind of faith that perseveres firm until the end. Or or do you see anything in your life that might become... Apostasy? Do you see anything in your life that might become apostasy eventually? (laughs) That's a loaded question. How would you know? How would you know? You would know from seven things. Seven things that might become apostasy eventually. This is weighty and serious. Seven signs. Number one, the gradually increasing domination of a secret sin. That's that's the first major sign of potential apostasy. Gradually increasing domination of secret sin. Could be lust, could be greed, could be materialism, you name it. The larger it grows, the colder to Christ you will become. Potential sign of apostasy number two. More and more time spent with unbelievers, listen carefully, to the point where you prefer spending time with them, resulting in you being influenced by them. Now, let me say very carefully, no one is a greater advocate for you spending time with non-Christians than I am. I want you to spend time with lost people. I want you to do that. You should do that. You must do that. But it is a question of who is influencing who because you know you're in trouble when their jokes become funnier, when their views become credible, when you start saying things like, well, they're more loving than the Christians I know. And when you become ashamed of the gospel, when you see those things in your life, apostasy is not that. Sign number three. Sign number three, gradual coldness to the word of God and a shrinking appetite for the feast of scripture. <clears throat> if you see that, apostasy is close. Number four, when you hide your sin and you're never vulnerable with, what you, with how you're actually truly doing in the Christian life. In other words, you are comfortable with appearances and facades. Number five, When your heart grows cold to the church and you see the body of Christ as optional, when you're comfortable with not coming to church anymore, apostasy is not that far behind. Be warned. Number six, when you avoid relationships and you are unwilling to let people in. And number seven, number seven, apostasy is close if you are increasingly open to strange and unorthodox theological ideas question is do you see any of that in your life any of those signs that could eventually become apostasy eventually because if you do what do you do what are you supposed to do john already told us you abide you abide you abide you abide in christ tenacious white knuckled death grip upon christ through his word and you do that in the context of a local church Because part of the reason why we do small groups is not just to get your love cup filled, but to put people in your life that will keep you from crashing and burning in your faith. To put people in your life that will fight tooth and nail to keep you close and come after you. God forbid, should you begin to drift. Because look at the outcome of those who persevere to the end. Look what John says. Abide in him so that when he should be revealed, we should have boldness and not be ashamed of him at his coming. Do you see that? Boldness and not shame when he arrives. Boldness when Jesus Christ arrives. Boldness and not shame. Meaning what? Meaning what? That when he shows up, when you meet with him, you can look him in the eye and address him as a friend. As a friend. A friend that created you. A friend that took the wrath meant for you. A friend that upholds the universe by the word of his power. But a friend who loves you nevertheless. But when Christ arrives, not everyone will be so bold. Not everyone will be so bold. In fact, I close with this. But if Christ were to return today, the sky split open as a scroll, rolled back, Christ returns in glory. And he rides his white horse on the 20 freeway. And he pulls into the parking lot. And he sets up a throne right outside those doors. And we all lined up to meet him. I'm serious. How would you respond? How would you respond? Would you be tempted to cut in line? because of the excitement? Or would you quietly sneak out the back run to the parking lot? I'm serious. Because that might seem theoretical and ridiculous, but it's not. It's not theoretical and it's not ridiculous. It is real. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And yet how that meeting plays out for you Completely depends on what you do with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only reasonable thing to do is to repent and believe, to yield to the king in thirsty submission, to bow before his sovereign authority. To accept his bloody payment for sinners like us in repentance and faith. Don't you see? Jesus Christ loves sinners. He loves to save them. And he stands right now, arms open wide, offering infinite mercy and grace. And if the aged apostle were here right now, I think he would agree with me when I say that if you have not yet done so, you would be simply out of your mind not to accept. Let's pray. Oh Lord, the sense we get from this dear apostle is that truth is not a joke. That what we believe, what we affirm, what we acknowledge, how we view the world, that that matters, that truths have consequences, eternal consequences. Ideas have eternal consequences. And yet, Lord, you give us a zillion and one reasons to trust what you have spoken to trust what you have revealed although we feel loved by you through texts like this texts that are hard texts that are without boxing gloves texts that are clear black and white sharp edgy because it just goes to show that you just want us to understand what you're saying you want to be clear you're not interested in padding our feelings. You want us to believe because what we are to believe in is glorious and beautiful. And so I just pray. I pray that you would help us to be a truth loving people, a truth loving, truth affirming people who love your word and who affirm it with precision and clarity, knowing that that is not that is not distinct, that is not at war, that is not. That is not opposite of loving people. That is the foundation of loving people. We only love people well when we affirm sound doctrine and truth. Help us to be those kinds of people who lovingly, graciously wield sound doctrine and truth. We're thankful for this time together. In Christ's mighty name.